Welcome to The Business Grind, where we give you an inside perspective on what it takes to start, build, and run a successful business. Here are your hosts, Danny Shaw and Sean Michael Wellington. Hello to everyone in podcast land today. Thanks for joining us uh, for another episode of The Business Grind. Sean, how are you doing? Doing good, doing as well as can be in this uh, climate. How you doing? For real, I'm. You know, I'm. Can't complain. Just taking it one day at a time, and maintaining my social distance. You know. Yep. All right. All right. Uh, so today's episode, everyone, uh, we're going to be doing a case study on Dell computers or Dell. You know, um, I believe they go just by Dell right now, but you more probably more familiar by the Dell computers and the Dell product line. So today. Uh, me and Sean will discuss, you know, we'll discuss the origins, some of the key moments in the history of the company, you know, how they got started, and then take it from there as far as some lessons and key insights that we uh, got from the company and just discussing the growth and the trajectory and, and even some of the roadblocks and turmoils that they've had along the way to their uh, rise to success. Yeah, sounds good. So, all right. So first, we're just going to get into the history of the company for those who may not be familiar with Dell and how it got started and, and everything like that. So Dell is named after the uh, chairman of the company, Michael Dell. So this is Michael Dell named the company after himself. Um, so Currently, it's still one of the biggest computer manufacturers in the world, but it's not just computers anymore, which we'll get into a little later. But, um, you know, he started this business in his college dorm room, uh, you know, the classic uh, company being started in the dorm room uh, scenario. But initially, when he started the company, uh, he started it. Um, it was a company that upgraded hard drives, PC hard drives for other people. So it really was a service-based uh, company where, you know, Got the hard drives, updated, upgraded it for people, and was just working it to a side um, business, right? Um, now, why do you think, just before you move on, why do you think he doesn't kind of, I feel like he doesn't get the garage coming up recognition that, you know, some of the other guys, Steve Wozniak, Steve Jobs, and all those other guys get. I feel like he's like one of the forgotten guys in that space. I think it's really because of time. Time has forgotten about it because I think, you know, right now, the classic garage story that we are so used to hearing and seeing about now is uh, Facebook. Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg. Yeah. This is the main one, Zuckerberg from the Facebook movie. And um, and Apple, you know, the garage that the Steve's worked in. So, and also internet. Like, this is a tech computer company that was started before the rise of the internet. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think for a lot of people, it's so synonymous. You think computers and Internet that is even kind of hard to perceive a world where there was people had computers but wasn't using it for the Internet. Right. Right. So. Yeah. Um, so those I mean, for me, I just think those were probably the two main reasons why we don't hear about it or it's not even discussed. You know, he's this is one of the more older tech companies in, in the game as well. So you're just not really not going to hear it. Um, and also his personality doesn't lend itself to the... Uh, I was going to say that too. Yeah, he doesn't have this persona like, you know, mm-hmm. when you think of Mark Zuckerberg, you think of a hoodie or whatever. You think of Steve right. Jobs, you think of these presentations. Like there's no one signifier for uh, Michael Dell. Right. So yeah, so he started in the computer. Uh, I'm sorry, started in that industry um, with the, you know, in the dorm rooms doing that. Uh, he was actually in college for for medicine. He was in med school uh, for, uh, you know, to be a doctor. 
but the business became so profitable that he dropped out of pre-med to pursue this startup, right? Now, um, the story is it started with $1,000, you know, um, they, the, the common story is that it started, he started it with $1,000, which is actually a lot considering back. I mean, it's a lot now, <laughs> but it was a, a lot back in the day. And then I heard there was other stories about an investment for a considerably amount more from his family for, I believe, 30000 which I want to circle back on later in the show, especially when we talk about investments. But essentially, with that startup money, um, created his own company, uh, which was initially named PC Unlimited. I believe it was PC Unlimited. And, and then he was bringing in about 80K, I believe reports were saying, yeah. like, um, which is what caused them to drop out of med school. Right? Yeah, like he was, yeah, he was making, he was making way more money than he would have um, by continuing to go to med school and um, becoming a doctor, you know. So he, it was, so he started the company, PC Limited, started selling it directly from his condos, uh, a condo apartment, um, and kind of taking it from there, right? So initially when it first started, the company, the idea or his target. Oh, before we go into the the the, um, the business model for Dell, I think we need to touch on a little bit of back history on, on Michael Dell before the company started, which kind of leads to um, how he modeled the company. So even before that, um, he, he worked in the summer at a newspaper company in Houston where he was selling subscriptions to the uh, to people, newspaper subscriptions. However, instead of uh, approaching them from a call, cold call, it's like, hey, do you want a subscription to this newspaper? He directly focused on newlyweds and families that moved into the neighborhood, figuring that they would be the ones more likely to need a uh, newspaper subscription, right? Like newlyweds, people that's just moving in who may not be uh, familiar with the town and the city and the area are more likely to by these subscriptions. So he was already like exposed to business as well, which I think we should make a point of. It's not like kind of locked up or well, still locked up, but th- he did, he had some sort of business experience prior. Right? Yeah, he was business minded for right. sure. Yeah, so you know, um so early sen- definitely early sense of business, you know, selling to these families, uh earning 18,000 in the summer as a salesman, which is very, you know, very very impressive, right? Um, just off, the, off a summer job alone. But what helped to that success was just his focus on consumer insights and focusing and direct and targeting who he wanted to focus on as opposed to just, hey, we're trying to serve everybody. He definitely identified who his audience was and so forth, right? Um, so definitely early sense of business doing that. And then as he went into selling the computers on his own, you know, it kind of lended itself there early on with the focus on how he wanted to target, right? So we also have to think about context and key. This is the early 80s. Um, not a lot of people were aware or familiar with computers and what they do and their capabilities, all right? Um, so the strategy was to sell directly to consumers, um, but by cutting out the middleman, all right? So the way the current landscape was, you had the Radio Shacks, the Best Buys. I'm not sure if the Best Buys was out yet, but the Radio Shacks was out. Basically, the Wiz, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Wiz, all right. Yeah, yeah, okay. So these stores that just kind of how it is now, but you know, there was a showroom with the computers. You had a salesperson pitch you, you know, speak to you about the different capabilities of these PCs and what can be done and what can't be done. 
and then you would buy it, you know, based off these those specs, right? Um, and with that model, the with the middleman involved in the model, you had the radio. Show, they would upsell the the product for up to ten to thirty percent more than what they were getting it to be made from the manufacturer, right? So that was pretty much the landscape. Michael said, "Well, we're gonna, you know, I'm gonna change this a bit, go directly to consumers." With that being said. By going directly to consumers, you are targeting people that have to have a higher understanding or knowledge about computers and businesses as well. That you know they need to, they're going to have to know what they already want, what they need, and just even just knowledgeable about this, right? Whereas the per- role of the salesperson is to kind of uh, educate them as they're walk- walking them through the process. So with that in mind, took the approach. Well, we're going to advertise directly in these. PC magazines, these trade magazines, the magazines where we already know whoever's reading this already has a certain level of knowledge about computers and understanding so that they can make their computer spec to order and customize it accordingly. All right. Anything else you want to add to that point, Sean? Um, yeah. Also, I mean, in going with your theme about them um, cutting out the middleman, they also correct me if I'm wrong, they became kind of their own manufacturer in a way because they were buying the parts on demand as they would get orders in versus having a bulk supply sit in a warehouse and build the parts when an order comes in. They would buy the parts they need on demand and build the PCs almost a la carte, if I remember correctly. Right. So, yeah, so it's a mix of that. So they didn't actually make the pieces, but what they would do is buy... Different, like, manufacturers of those pieces. Exactly. So they would buy the pieces from the different manufacturers so that... They can, they basically a just in time inventory system where they would order it just at the right time and where they can assemble it, get all these pieces at one time, assemble it, and then get it out to the consumer in a timely manner. Right now, this is my first time hearing about that um, actual method. And when I was doing my research for Dell, I've never actually you speak a little bit more about the just in time um, process. Oh, okay, yeah. So the just in time process is you know really in regards to you know how you manage your inventory and overhead costs and things like that. Um, you manage your inventory based off the consumer demand. There's a lot of factors to take into it, though. You know, um, how long if you how long is it going to cost you to store these items on your own, right? Or to have more of these items in stock? Uh, what is the demand for these products as a whole? You know, um, there's a lot of factors to take into consideration, right? And you have this with any type of business for the most part that sells some type of product. So like a supermarket, you know, they have an inventory system. Uh, the, the food supply chain has a certain type of system and, you know, it's not a just-in-time uh, dynamic. They kind of need a, a little buffer, you know, to allocate for uh, disruptions in travel or uh, other factors, which is so dependent on so many other things, right? Um, and also with the computer industry, it's, it's dependent on a lot of things. But in Dell's case, they did a just-in-time uh inventory system or process distribution system because one uh it one it helped on cost right so one less overhead needed to have all these items in storage for you know an extended amount of time lowers that right too we talk- and also didn't that sorry to cut you off no, but didn't that didn't that mean they had kind of like the freshest parts because exactly they were, um, yeah exactly because the tech was you know just like today the tech moves so fast 
you 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 know you can easily be sitting on inventory that's already outdated. So then mm-hmm. by the time it goes to market, you're you have to cut the prices even more, right? So by allowing a more you know limber uh, operating system, operate uh, distribution system, it allowed them to be more advantageous in in, in their offering, right? Uh, so yeah, uh, also be it a they had the benefit of doing that because their consumers knew what they wanted. So it allowed them to know what to order as opposed to a Radio Shack. They had to buy the, the computer completely assembled and just sell it out indiscriminately. Right. right. Yeah. So that provided a, a big advantage for them uh, in that regard. Now, in some cases, you know, and depending on your industry, there is a case where that is not going to work, right? Well, you're always going to need some surplus of inventory and supply and just, you know, uh, just because, right? But in this case, this was there. This is what made them stronger and com- able to compete against the bigger, uh, the bigger established companies in the space at the time, right? Um, and it allowed them to do what is actually happening all around us right now. Uh, it was an early example of customization, Right. And made to order items, which is what we do now. Right. Everything is very, you know, Nike does, you know, you can customize your own sneakers and design certain things and, you know, things of that nature. But this was done from a tech perspective. So allowed customization, um, cut out the middleman, which, you know, 10, 30 percent, you can save 10 to 30 percent off the markup that, the you know, you're going to get hit with. That's a benefit. And it allowed the. Dell to get a lot of key insights and data on their customers that they probably would not have been able to get by dealing with a middleman such as a Best Buy. Um, um, or they would have to pay to get. Right, right. So it was kind of, you know, that relationship, <clears throat> excuse me, helped strengthen their business and their relationships, right? But also that just, just to be clear, at the time, that consumer base, it couldn't have been somebody who didn't know anything from anything. Right, it had to be some level of knowledge uh, going into the conversation, which is why they specifically targeted, you know, the PC magazines and the trade magazines for computer uh, enthusiasts and so forth in that community. And also, as they started building their company and you know these assembly uh, assemble, <laughs> assembly fact factories, one another thing that they was very strategic with. Now, mind you, they didn't really want to get into the business of creating their own parts and basic, uh, but. They would set up these the distribution centers and the assembly lines very strategically to consumer bases that would help it get out even faster, right? So, no, they weren't producing uh, these parts, but they would set up these place, the strategic places and warehouses where the parts would get delivered so it can be assembled pretty fast, you know, on, on the spot and make for easier uh, shipping transaction. So, after that, you know, start the company, businesses... Going good, you know, on the uh, the original name, decided to change it uh, and rename it to Dell, right? So they re- uh, renamed the company to Dell and went into more of the, you know, uh, expanding more. By 1988, they was doing 160 million in sales, right? And that was 1988, so that was pretty, uh, uh, pretty big. However, they had a big one of their big criticism. One of the major criticism at the time is that. Because of their model, they couldn't scale for businesses and bigger accounts, which is would be an ideal situation. Up until that time, 
most of their clientele was, you know, PC, personal home use, or uh, smaller businesses. But to scale it up to bigger and large corporations, that wasn't going to really be their strong suit because they made everything customized, right? And anybody that's worked in a corporation, organization, you know, everybody usually gets the standard workstation, right? Um, yeah. So that was kind of one of their big issues. Um However, they they did get around that. One of they did get around that was um, they started cutting deals with the company, which now instead of just creating the computers and specs to buy and ship out, they would come pre-installed with the programs already. Which you know, I'm I'm not clear on the on the intricacies of that deal. I'm sure they had to pay a nice licensing fee uh, <laughs> in order to make that happen you know, uh, shipping these programs and, and installing it on the computers. But that was their, that was going to be their uh, differentiator, their point of differentiation from the other computer companies. Hey, if you're a trucking company, we'll install all the programs you need to run your business smoothly. If you're a, you know, uh, architect company, you know, everything you need to do, all the programs would be installed. So essentially you're not going to have to do much heavy lifting as you know um if you're working with us so that proved to be um uh a boost to allowing them to get more corporate clients as well you wanted to add anything to that sean um just because you mentioned the year 1988 that was also the year they did their uh first ipo um ah. and i think their initial offering was 30 million is what they were worth oh wow okay yeah um so i think you know, we can jump ahead to kind of speak to how they got a huge boost. I mean, as if doing 160 million in sales in '88 wasn't big enough, but uh, they definitely got a huge boost in around '96 with the you know rise of the internet. Right? For sure, so, that's when they first started selling online. Basically, right? yeah, they started selling online. I know initially, early reports was that they was doing two million a day on a site and sales and then eventually got to five million very quickly um so i feel like we got to set the stage for everybody a little bit because <laughs> at the time they were not selling computers to consumers i think they were that was like one percent of their revenue right and the main competitors the people who were doing it well were hewlett packard mm-hmm. um they were uh who else was it it was uh what's that cheap one i had one no, <laughs> Packard was a cheap one actually cheap that was a cheap one that was that was that was the, sorry i should say cost effective nah, it, was, it was cost efficient it was cost efficient <laughs> yeah but there was hewlett packard and there was um compact for sorry, compact, sorry. Those right. were, yeah those are the main kind of like consumer competitors at the time yeah so. yeah so no and definitely and i think you know dating yourself at this point was like it's kind of hard for people to imagine a world without e-commerce or online shopping or something like mm-hmm. that. And even even then, what I think is also amazing is that you know now we live in a world where we can't even imagine a like it's not we don't even second guess buying something online, right? We really don't. We go, we put in our credit card, PayPal, whatever information, however we pay for stuff, uh, we just go and we do it, right? There was a time. Yeah. There was a time when you was not putting in your information or not to buy stuff. There was always that risk. I mean, there's still a risk now, but there was a high suspicion factor with buying stuff online. You know. Uh, yeah, because there was no person to go complain to, right? right? right. There was no. Yeah. So for this to happen in '96, you know, and to be doing this amount of business was was is ridiculous, and you know, 
it's kind of unimaginable, but this is where the state of um, the business was, you know, that them launching their site and allowing people to order online and customize their PCs and purchases was just an even bigger boost to uh, what they were trying to do and what they were about. Right. And they already had experience, even though it was more B two B than anything. They already had experience with that right. model of 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 getting people not in person. Right. Um, it, it was the tel- telephones in the eighties, but right. once it became you know the nineties online, it was the same model, just upgraded. Mm-hmm. So. Telephone and, and telephone and fax fax is, this is how they got the most majority of their orders, fax machines. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, <laughs> so yeah. So, you know, that led to the huge, you know, success for them with the internet of and um, growing our sales. And, you know, we can fast forward a bit. I would say they, you know, 96, you know, they were at the height. And then I think we all remember the, the dude you're getting a, a Dell campaign. Just call or go online. Tell them what you want. And right to your front door comes America's favorite PC. Dude, you're getting a Dell. Easy to buy, easy to own, easy as Dell. Right. Yeah. Uh, fun fact: I went to high school with that dude. Oh, really? Um, Did you? Yeah. <laughs> well, he's not the dude that said dude you're getting the Dell. It's the dude that got the Dell. That was. Oh, I'm really? Okay. With. Okay. So <laughs> yeah. by by association, not the dude, dude, but the the dude next to the dude. <laughs> well, he is the dude. He's the one who they're saying dude to. Uh, so technically, he is. The dude, he is the dude. But... All right. Got it. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> um. But yeah. No, nah, that was huge. And then I think um at 2000 is when they actually became the market leader. So they topped IBM, they topped Compaq, they topped all other computer, HP, mm-hmm. topped all the computer sales, right? 2000 was their hype right. as a company right. um, in the consumer business. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, they, they were riding high for, for quite a while, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, uh, you know, everything was on up and up for the most part. And, you know, around the mid, uh, what, what, what do we want to say around the mid, Oh three, oh three ish, oh three ish is when they, you know, like all companies, sometimes you just get too big, too successful, and you start stumbling along the way. You know, what got you to where you're at isn't really uh, what's going to get you to where you need to get to next. Um, also, the marketplace was changing. You know, yes. that's when uh, yeah. Apple started mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. breaking through with the uh, iPods. Right, right. The iPod, the iMacs, even though, you know, <laughs> the Mac computers, you know, it was the Apple computers at the time were, you know, still very focused for the creative industry, but they was definitely pushing into the consumer, more consumer uh, facing audience for, for their computers. So competition was coming around. The landscape of the industry was also changing where uh, it wasn't just about computers anymore. Yeah, right? It was becoming mobile. We were getting into mobile age mobile, a little bit. Mobile and tablets, which... You know, brings a, a good point. You know, Dell really got exposed in that area um, early on because uh, they lost about 47% in sales one year, around maybe 2003, I believe it was. Uh, 2012, excuse me, I'm jumping. Um, they plunged by 47% because they focused so much uh on laptops and desktops in the consumer market for revenue so now i do want to mention one key purchase in 06 of alienware in that in that time frame mm-hmm. because that that kind of is what it'll come back into play with keeping them afloat I right think. oh for sure for sure um no that's a good point so but they literally had no share in the tablet and smartphone space 
for a long. They, nah. was, they was they were late to market for that. Do you remember the Dell DJ? <laughs> My wife had one of those, oh, um, but I... they did not break through at all. <laughs> she was, I think, she had a discount because she owned a Dell oh, uh, laptop. Wow, wow, wow! wow. I, I don't even remember that. I'm gonna have to do my Googles after. This <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it okay. was it was before the Zoom, before mm. Microsoft came out with the Zoom. Dell mm. had their own MP3 player oh, called the oh, Dell oh, DJ. Oh, oh, oh! You know what? Um, you bring it back memories now. Yes, yes, you are bringing. I vaguely. I vaguely remember that they had that. And I actually, I think I'm pretty sure I considered it. I think I considered it. Pretty, <laughs> I'm pretty sure. If I'm going to do my research after this uh, recorded and see if it's visually, if it looks like, I, I remember they did introduce that to the market. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you know, a few missteps along the way, which yeah. is par for course, especially with a lot of tech companies, right? Um, yeah. So we'll circle back to the... So let's circle back to some of the key acquisitions that you was mentioning. Oh, okay, uh, so uh, Alienware in 06, right? Right. Um, so that kind of put them more in the IT space, um, which, you know, is a big lesson that we, you know, we, as any business owner, entrepreneur has to uh, take note of is knowing when to diversify your offerings, you know, or expand, you know, your portfolio of a base of offerings. So... With that, you know, they had that key acquisition and they've had some, um, some more along the way, um, which we don't need to go down the rabbit hole on all, this, all the moves that was made. But let's, no, just, no. Yeah, but let's just jump right into, I want to kind of focus on where they're at now, right? Okay. Um, and right now, you know, they started as a hard drive, you know, up, he started as up, upgrading these hard drives to selling computers out of his dorm room to, you know, a multi-million dollar company that sell personalized personal made to own computers and but now they're you know they're a multinational computer technology company right <laughs> so it does a lot it's not just we don't just sell computers you know they develop they sell they repair they support related products they have you know I, if you pull up their site to see what they offer now you know uh Everything, right? Anything that we would associate with electronics, right? Desktops, tablets, uh, gameware, workstation, servers and storage, networking, monitors, ink. So, you know, everything, right? Everything. And then looking at, um, this is a numbers from 2018. Mm -hmm. um, so in terms of their revenue, 47% of it came from client solutions. So that's everything that goes to the consumer, hardware, mm -hmm. all things you mentioned, printers, mm -hmm. um, games. 40% uh, of that came from infrastructure solutions. So that's the cloud stuff, the, be the business stuff, mm -hmm. right? Um, all the digital infrastructure. And then 10% is where I think you were going next is VMware. That's 10% of their revenue right now, there, which is another acquisition mm -hmm. um, that they picked up. Right. And um, v VMware is just, especially now with the shift in the, in the landscape for all these businesses to digitize as fast as possible with a strong infrastructure and cloud storage, VMware is, is, is going to be growing for a long time to come, right? Um, so, yeah, that just speaks to where they're at now, uh, what type of company they are now. Um, but also from where they started, right? Uh, yeah. So I think it would be a disservice if we didn't touch upon the privatization and going back to public uh, saga. That could and I had a couple of questions on that too, so maybe right. you could clarify how he was able to pull off some of these moves, how Michael Dell that is. So. Uh, okay. 
Well, I mean, let's just... So one of the tenets of Dell early on was, you know, they definitely... It was about consumer satisfaction first and focusing on the consumer. We're here to help, giving that great customer service over the phone, throughout the website, all that type of stuff. You know, what happens a lot for a lot of businesses is this isn't just the tech companies, it's pretty much any business. When you become public, when you become a public company, you know, when it was private and, you know, the revenue was coming in, they have more discretion on what type of moves and and, and, and changes that they want to do within a company. Once you become public, a lot of times the pressure becomes to please the shareholders instead of the customers, right? So what does that mean? That means you have to start put more energy into making a company even more profitable. And it does profit doesn't just come from uh, you know, more sales. It comes from where can you cut operation costs, right? Operation efficiencies and stuff like that. So they'll got a lot of a flag for, you know, something that made them, you know, stand out, which was their customer service for now something that was so subpar, a lot of outsourcing uh, their call centers, a lot of, you know, just bad service, just bad service across the board. But the quality just went down on something that they were so known for and what endeared them to people in the first place. Right now, would you say, in your opinion, this is just a theory that because they were the pioneers in that space, right? On-site service, I think they refer to it as. So mm-hmm. before there was, uh, before, if your PC was broken, you had to go carry that heavy thing to the store and get it fixed. Mm-hmm. But they kind of revolutionized the process of call and troubleshoot. Mm-hmm. Okay, we'll send a tech over with some tools to fix it. Right. Um, so they were the first in that space. And then, like you said, later on in their history, they kind of had a reputation of being bad customer service. Now, do you think it's because they were the pioneers that they had kind of built themselves up to a level where the service may not have been as bad as it was reported? Or do you think that was really a failing of the company? I think it's a little bit of both. I think, you know, here's, here's, here's the thing. It's a little bit of both. But with all companies, the more success you get, the more... The scrutiny. More, the more scrutiny. The more scrutiny. Especially if you focused on something that was a core value of the company that made it successful. If you start straying away from that, then the the scrutiny is is going to come and it's going to be warranted. If your focus was on direct to consumer, listening to the customer, getting that feedback, that was what helped you grow and become where you're at, you know, now you're straying away from it. It's it's going to come, you know. It's definitely going to come. Zappos, you know, just transition to another business, Zappos, the shoemaker, you know, what made them so successful in their place was their customer service and how they treated customers and how they respond to them and react and their whole business culture, uh, which was one of the things that, you know, the Zappos founder when he didn't want to sell to uh, Amazon initially. And then when they did sell, one of the terms was you can't interfere with our culture and what made us successful for the sake of these shareholders. Right. So in Dell's case, you know, whether we think it's perceived or imagined, I mean, and it may be a little bit of both. The fact perception is reality, right? So you have to address that and handle those things. Um, And the only way Dell was really going to be able to handle that without the scrutiny of the shareholders, and I might, you know, I'm probably oversimplifying it for the sake of order, was to go back private. You know, you go back private, you're not really having conflicts with 
investors and shareholders. And if I'm not mistaken, Dell and Carl Icahn, who is a very famous uh, activist investor, had some issues because he was of the direction of the company, right? So, you know, by going private, it can kind of allow you to go back to the drawing board and re- you know, strengthen the foundation that made you successful in the first place and also sustain you for future growth. So to put it on a timeline, kind of, they, you know, the business started in the garage in 1981, right? And then it became, it went public, their first IPO in 1988 with a $30 million uh, valuation. Mm -hmm. Um, At their height, they were making money in 2000. That was their height. And then 04 to 07 is when they took a huge dip and then they went private in 2013. Yeah, that's a rough. I mean, we're missing. We're doing an accelerated timeline. <laughs> yeah, accelerated timeline. Right. I think that's about when. Yeah. They, right? Was it 2013 when they, when they went private again? I think yeah, around that time. Around that time. So you know, and now where they stand now, they are. Uh, yeah, 2013 when they went private, but and now they're back to public as of 2018. 2018. And uh, they did it by. I mean, I don't know the technicalities. We don't got to get into it, but I know it was different than they didn't do IPO this time, right? Right. right. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, that's where they're at now. You know, multinational company. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't mean as I hope I don't mean as in like a demeaning way or even as a negative. But to me, when I look at Dale now, and you know what I see from them, I'm they're very profitable. This is you know this is very commendable. There's nothing to take away from it. But I do it kind of. I guess my initial gut feeling when I look at what Dell is now is like, oh, well, they're just like everybody else, you know. Um, and when I say everybody else, I mean like they're they're one of those names that's synonymous, like with the Microsofts, the Intel's, the IBM's, right? They're yeah, they're and in those type of companies with the Microsofts, the Intel's, the IBM's, and playing in that in that bucket, they're tech companies, but they don't necessarily at least for the younger generations, doesn't really evoke the sense of cool, you know, or like they, I, most people wouldn't be able to pick them out from a lineup. True. Right. Now, I do think that their business model is diversified enough where that's not necessarily a, a cool factor doesn't affect them so much. Right. So, for example, their enterprise hardware uh, competitors, right? You got mm-hmm. Cisco, mm-hmm. you got Ericsson, you got Oracle. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like their names are almost as synonymous with, you know, maybe Cisco's the leader in that space, right? Mm-hmm. But I feel like them and Oracle can be on equal footing, maybe, you okay. know, just from consumer perception, or like, right? Right. right. Um, for regular consumer products, you got HP, Lenovo, are kind of like in their range, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then I guess for the for the VMware stuff, the the cloud solutions. Mm-hmm. Um, what is it like Microsoft, Salesforce, right? Right, right. right. Um, Workday. Um, so, so, so I see your point that they don't necessarily, they've, they've kind of blended into the crowd now. They kind of blended, yeah. which isn't, you know, listen, the balance sheets is the balance sheets, right? <laughs> well, let's talk about it because I know one of your big things is debt and they got a lot of debt. They have a lot of debt. Uh, but before we get into the debt, uh, I think. The last time I ever think they even cared about being cool or make, you know, their efforts <laughs> was probably the dude you're getting the Dell campaign. Dude, the Dell. <laughs> I mean, yeah, after that, it's like, forget this. We're focused on business, baby. We don't got time But they for got it. a great jingle, though. You know that noise when you hear right, it. Right, right. Yeah. So. Good point. Very good point. Very good point. So, yes. All right. So, yes, they have a lot of debt. And in this case, 
I mean, it works. It, they're making it work, right? They're, they're making it work. They're a multinational company. You know, mm-hmm. here's the thing about debt. Yes, I am anti-debt, right? But I also know when you need to take on debt for the business and when it's needed and when to grow it and, and things like that. So there's you're not really going to have, there's really no business that isn't taking on no debt, just the way the whole billing system is, the cycles, the distribution methodology, all of that type of stuff is going to, you're going to have to incur some level of debt, right? It is, and But for me, it's all about the ratio, the debt to earning profit, cash flow, all of those other elements. So debt is debt. It's something that you have to take on, right? In this case, they are a multinational company. They're in a space that is continuing to, that it's hyper growth. Like there isn't any really, any other industry that's growing as fast as this, right? Um, so, you know, tech, computers, it's, there's no other industry going like this. And in order to make, remain relevant and strong and consistent and competitive, it does require a certain amount of debt to take on, right? Again, not advocating reckless debt, but in a case like this, you know, they're not going to grow by being the lean, scrappy, you know what I mean? Not in the space that they're in. They're in everything tech-wise, right? It's not like they're saying, oh, well, we're just going to be focused on this side and, you know, the software side, or we're only on servers. They were when they first came out, but that's not where they're at now. So, Yeah, they operate across all those spaces. Right. Um, but from just from what I, from my research, the mm-hmm. The main source of that debt, the bulk of it, fifty billion, if I'm not uh, mistaken, came from their purchase of EMC, right? Um, which is, is what allows them now to compete in the spaces they're in. So it's like, it, would they even exist if it weren't for that debt, right? Right, right. That's a and that's a listen. I, I'm not in those rooms in those meetings to make that decision. You know, there was a pretty, pretty sure. Oh, sometimes you want to give them benefit of doubt, but I'm pretty sure they had a team. Of number cruncher, number crunchers, and analysts going through these numbers to make sure that hey, we're taking on this debt now, but it's going to pay off at a certain uh, point. You know, at a certain <clears> point, <throat> we will turn the corner. Uh, and listen, there are times when those decisions still turn out to be the wrong move and the wrong decision. And we're, we're going to have a whole episode of case studies where things aren't as bright and and picturesque. And there have been cases where business deals gone bad based off speculation that things would turn the corner and it was okay to take on his debt because the long term would be proved to be more profitable than the, than the debt that's being taken on now right um so yeah so you know uh yeah so not all debt i don't want people you know some debt has to be incurred especially in business uh it's just the way it is you know um unfortunately you have to grow and sometimes you don't have the capital, which we're seeing right now, Sean, right? We're seeing in the business space right now with all these companies that are, unfortunately, because of the debt or because of how the cash flow is are really suffering right now. So, yeah. So, with that being said, there's a lot of lessons that I got from this as a tech company, as it being a tech company, that I see is relevant to even non-tech businesses and, and startups, all right? Um, but I'll pass off to you first to see was there anything that you got from it um on your side yeah i mean in terms of the common theme how they've been able to be so successful it seems like through 30 years is just being innovators and it 
seems like a generic platitude at first, but when you really look at it, all right, let's look at their first thing. They innovated the on-site service. That's how they were able to stand out and mm-hmm. build their, you know, double their, their sales. Right. Then they also innovated their supply chain, like the way they were building their machines allowed them to compete with IBM. Like mm-hmm. that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Then you move into the uh, 1996, they innovated the way they sell to the, directly to the consumer through the online business, you know, mm-hmm. through internet sales. So it's just continually innovating what they do. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the common theme I see from this company in particular, and Michael um, Dell specifically. Like he's kind of been at the helm for the most part. Like I know he walked away from the company for a little bit, mm-hmm. but he's been kind of leading the direction of the company for the bulk of its you know time. So right. I think having a leader with a clear vision and who's willing to innovate is kind of the takeaway I got from their story. There's nothing wrong with consistency, right? There's nothing not wrong. at all. Not, not at all. Not, and I think, you know, they've been innovative and, you know, I did make the comment about, oh, they're in the same space with the Microsoft and the other companies that, most consumers aren't thinking of, but this is a solid company, right? Like they, they've been consistent, a 30 year track record. It, it hasn't been perfect for 30 years, but it's been more, more, more up years than down years. They've been on the fortune 500 for how many of them years, you right. know? I mean, right. So, and so to maintain that type of track record is, is very uh, commendable. I would say for me, a few things that I took away from this story, which was one, you just got to do something. Right. Um, and I think especially for a lot of aspiring business people and entrepreneurs, uh, they feel like their product or their offering has to be super, super perfect before they go to market. Right. Um, and, you know, they they need to have all these all the bells and whistles. They've invested in a lot of time and effort and, and, and money to release something without without having interacted with anybody to see if there was a need. And by the time they launch, it, it flops, right? Um, but I'm of the mindset that you just have to do something, right? He was doing he was doing something in his dorm room, right? And as much as we like to romanticize, you know, all these people that created these businesses in the, in the, you know, in the dorm room or something, the fact of the matter is that he did something. He was just doing it, and it progressed to something else. You know, it didn't start off as a multinational national company, and I think a lot of people see where they want their company to be, and and they get stuck on that. Yeah, get stuck on that, and not really focusing on the steps that get there. Like, what what is your dorm room story? Maybe it's your living room story. Maybe it's your kitchen story. Right? Like, where did where are you starting your situation at to get to where it's at? Because I think you know a lot of people just focus on the final destination of where the business is. And it, it hurts you. It definitely hurts you. It's especially, you know, um, if you're not think you know, if you're not paying attention to those steps that need that you need to in order to get it to that final destination. So that that's what I took from it, you know. And also it, it is does say something he he had some experience prior as a salesperson, which I know for me is my weak spot as a business person. I I don't you know, there's certain things I don't feel comfortable selling, but he had that experience as a salesperson, which um, exposed him to how he wanted to, you know, attract business, right? Yeah, it was very, I think it's really influential. That's a good point that right. we probably didn't even talk about enough is that his background in sales before he even right. set up his first shop for PCs, you know what I mean? Right. It helped status that. It's completely different fields. You know, he was working for a newspaper selling subscriptions, right? 
but said, okay, instead of cold calling everybody, let me target these people because these are more likely. Let me see the revenue. So literally took a similar approach as he applied it to a, to his tech and PC market, right? Um, another thing I took from it that he was, you know, this was this is lean before the lean startup became the buzzword of the moment on how to start your businesses, right? Yeah, like, that's was, true. <laughs> this, this is totally some lean in between classes, going to do this, upsell it, and then making so much money and saying, oh, wow, now I got to, now I have to expand, which, you know, again, he expanded once the demand was there as opposed to just going out saying, let me, you know, very strategic on where the investments was going and how the business grew. Right? Yeah. Um, also, the direct-to-consumer model, you know, that was 30 years ago, and it, it it's, it's interesting just to see that's the space that we've become right now. You know, all industries are pretty much trying to figure out a better direct-to-consumer model than what's already been established or what already exists. Right. Um, we still rely on a lot of middlemen for a lot of these uh, services. A lot of these major corporations rely on the middleman. But now with, you know, this new environment, this new world that we're living in, you know, uh, a lot of these companies are not prepared and not equipped to uh, create a direct to consumer environment. And it's not just about setting up a website and doing it. You got to make sure your whole back end and your infrastructure and everything is set up in order to do it. But the fact that he was doing it way before it was the end thing to do, right? Um, he did it more as a, to be strategic and have an advantage over the bigger competitors in the industry. Yeah, keep his overhead down. Right. right. And now it, it's very clear that now you have to do it as a necessity, right? It's, it's a necessity. But... I will say for a lot of smaller business owners, this is this is this is the time for it. We've seen it already, uh, and you know a lot of people are setting up their own websites, selling their own classes, you know, creating their own mailing list. They they're already on that forefront of direct to consumers because they've kind of been on that mindset for a while now, right? Um, people setting up their own shops and 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 master classes, <laughs> right? Uh, so that that was a good lesson. It doesn't you don't need to be in a uh, a tech focused field to kind of take away that direct to consumer. It's gonna probably be you know obviously a little bit of a bigger challenge and more effort and work is gonna be probably needed to develop that consumer base and sell, especially if you aren't a naturally a seller like that. But I think the environment definitely is pushing us faster towards that model for a lot of businesses. Um, so any anything else you want to add to to the closing notes and whatnot? Um, more so like a question. Um, again, me trying to get in the weeds of the business and understand some of their, um, their strategies. Mm-hmm. So I saw that. So going back to VM a little bit, um, they said that's their highest margins with, right. with VM, uh-huh. and, but they only own 80% of it. So right. how does that work if... They don't own it outright. I, I, I just assume they had purchased it um, completely. Right. Um, yeah, so oh. I'm just a little curious how so, that works. So we got we'll, we'll, we're going to have to do an episode about margins. So that's that's going to be very good. So, oh, please, I don't want the CPAs coming and commenting and talking about <laughs> we're giving wrong uh, wrong tax information. So I'm going to I'm going to try to 
speak to it as simply as possible and hopefully it's not that not faulty information you can own it's how so the question is how can a company own a percentage of another company yeah is that basically i mean in in the most simplest of terms and i'm gonna so simplify it it's similar to how you own stock in a company we as regular people own stock can own stock and corporations own stock right Mm, Uh, so that's the, the the basic basic outline, you know. And I don't know what the, the corporate structure of VMware is, but whatever the corporate structure is, Dell owns. What do you say? Twenty percent? Is that is that what uh, you said? Eighty percent. Eighty percent. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So they own eighty percent, which on appearance would seem, you know, that is a controlling interest and controlling stake, depending on what the structure is and if it's through stocks or preferred shares as well, as opposed to common shares, but. Basically, they own eighty percent. Whatever the business is doing, whenever whenever the dust gets settled and VMware, you know, settles their, um, you know, the balance sheets and where the profit is and the revenue, you know, whatever the management and the agreement is on how the profits get shared, whether it's going back into investment, investing in the business to help it grow, whatever it is, you know, Dell is a beneficiary of that process. So if the if they if the if the plan is to keep that money and the profits and to reinvest it into the company or dividends or whatever. If the company grows, then Dell is going to grow because VMware is growing and they own 80%. Right. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, and considering the space that VMware is in, my assumption is that, you know, a lot of that is being put into growing the company um, and, and getting more uh, market share of the space and helping it grow. Yeah. And then in that realm of the cloud marketing space, like, so VMware is, again, these numbers for 2018, I'm sure mm-hmm. it's different right now, especially mm-hmm. after Corona, uh-huh. but 10% of their revenue came from VMware. Okay. Um, so I see that the cloud and market, the cloud market overall is 86 billion as of 2018, right? Mm-hmm. So do you think they would shift more of their resources into increasing that? Like I'm just seeing how they've been innovating in the previous changes and shifts in the industry and it seems like well do you think they'll go all in or maybe not all in but more in on the cloud or is it just keeping it this diversified is that the best is that what you would do i mean 80 percent is a lot already like i don't we don't <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> true I don't, I don't think you well, know. maybe not maybe not owning more vmware specifically but mm-hmm. like maybe just in- investing more in that arm of the business i guess i mean you do that you you want to invest more to help the market and to help it grow. The fact of the matter is cloud, you know, we talk about digital and tech and that whole industry as a whole growing, but the biggest part is probably the cloud storage, uh, storage space war, cloud services, all of that is the place where the most growth is growing at this point. Um, so it would be smarter them to invest in that arena to help with the growth, but I feel like being eighty percent in is is a big enough investment. You don't want to put all your eggs in one basket basket from from an investment perspective and just from a business That's strategy, true. and just from a business strategy, right? Um, because as as hard as it is is for us to imagine right now, because it's growing, there will be something else after the cloud, right? Uh, there will be something else. You know, there's always going to be something else, and you as a business. You have to figure out where's the fine line on investing in the future, even if that future is cannibalizing some of your other established business streams. 
And while the cloud and VMware and all that is great, you got to remember they're still selling storage, such as hard drives, and they're still selling other things that compete directly, right? So there's a fine balance on where you have to, you know, manage that relationship. But I think them being in 80% is a good place to be and to keep on. Yeah. So there we go. Um, that's all I have for, for, for Dell. You know, definitely, I, I, I definitely had, I had a good time researching this company and digging into it, you know, um, cause there was some things that I just even wasn't fully aware of and, and, and how the history of this company came about and how they got into the game or how he got into the game. Um, it's just very, very interesting. 30 year company maintaining the strength and, uh, consistency is definitely not nothing to to take lightly so and i also was able to get some you know just see how it can apply to non-tech i really think we're in a place where a lot of success stories is directly tied to tech companies and people feel like if they're not tech they can't be as successful but the a lot of the strategies and and methods that was used to make this company big um was not really tech focused it was manufacturing focused it was focusing on consumers and and things like that and improving processes which anybody can do no matter what business you know you can improve process uh anywhere right all right anything from you any closing notes sean no i think that's it and then um i wish i remember the name of dude from high school who was in the Dell commercials <laughs> but if you're listening shout out to you i think it was andrew something all but, right you know. All right, all right. Shout out, maybe Andrew or <laughs> Andrew something. Nah, Joe, you're gonna you're gonna give the wrong name, and it's not gonna. Happen. Yeah, uh, forget that. All right, so that's all we have for today. You know, in this episode of the Business Grind, um, on our case study on, on Dell. If you have a question you would like us to answer on the show, shoot us a message on any of our social media channels, or shoot us an email at questions at businessgrindshow dot com. See you again soon. In the meantime, keep, keep grinding. grinding. The Business Grind is for entertainment purposes. Opinions expressed are those solely of the host and guests. Please consult with a professional and exercise discretion before engaging in any business endeavors.